For the past 13 years, the Economist Intelligence Unit has published its annual Democracy Index, a measurement that helps assess the state of democracy in 165 countries. It covers almost the entire world population and the vast majority of independent states. Each country is classified as one of four types of regime. Full democracy, flawed democracy, hybrid regime, or authoritarian regime. In Latin America, only three countries qualified as full democracies, Chile, Costa Rica, and Uruguay, which is as many as those qualified as authoritarian regimes, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Cuba. The region's overall scores have decreased over the past five years, but the latest index reveals the fragility of democracy in times of crisis and how governments are often willing to sacrifice civil liberties and exercise unchecked authority in an emergency situation. This week, we try to discuss the state and future of democracy in the world's most unequal region. My name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. This is Explaining Brazil. Brazilian think tank Fundação Getúlio Vargas recently published the memoirs of retired General Eduardo Villas Boas, who served as commander of the Brazilian army between 2015 and 2019. Well, the book contains several historical and factual inaccuracies made by the former military chief, one part has caught the eyes of Brazilian political observers. Villaboas describes in detail his most controversial tweet, published on April the 3rd, 2018. On the very next day, the Supreme Court would decide whether former President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva should be granted habeas corpus or go to prison following multiple convictions for corruption and money laundering. If the court ruled for Lula, he would have been able to be a more active voice in the presidential election that would happen six months later, and which saw Jair Bolsonaro ascend to power. Villas Boas published a tweet claiming that the army was anxious to see the constitution being respected and social peace maintained. But in a country such as Brazil, with a history of military coups, such words from the head of the army carry significant weight. By a 6-5 majority, the Supreme Court would vote against Lula and send him to prison, making it impossible for him to take part in the 2018 campaign. The extent to which the Villas Boas tweet influenced the eventual decision will never be known, but that is beside the point. What matters for our discussion is that the head of the army tried to publicly influence the Supreme Court in a historic trial. Beatriz Hay, you are a research fellow at the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at the American University in Washington, D.C., and you're also a columnist for the Brazilian Report. Thanks for joining us. I'd like to begin our discussion by asking you, what does this move by the former army commander tell us about Brazilian democracy? So I think, first of all, uh, I think that speaks to the uh, weakness of democratic institutions. And political scientists have been talking about that recently. Uh, and interestingly, the, the topic of military politics was something that was forgotten uh, after uh countries, especially like Brazil and Chile and Argentina and Uruguay, um, democratized and came out of the authoritarian, the military dictatorships 
that were in place in the 60s, the 70s, and a part of the 80s. Uh, so for, for a long period of time, we, we, we basically thought that that problem um, was over, right? Um, and especially for Brazil. Uh, and then the election of Bolsonaro uh, showed us that it is not. Uh, the military is still uh, a big influence in politics, and, and it shouldn't really be uh, in, in a democracy that is consolidated as we want it to be. So I think these these messages only speak to the to the still the problem that we have of uh, weakness weakness of democratic institutions, uh, in the sense that the military still has a say and is still interfering with uh, politics in a way that should not happen. A lot of political scientists in Brazil say that the fact that President Jair Bolsonaro has not been very successful in his most anti-democratic rampants is proof that our institutions have been working as they should. Uh, so I think when you ask me whether institutions are working, we have to talk about which institutions, right? The first question you asked me was about the interference of the military in politics. And, and that is something that has been problematic. But when you think about other institutions, and I'll give you one example, uh, in the case of Brazil, we have at least until uh, now, until the, the recent election of congressional leadership, you had a Congress that uh, in a way or another, even uh, if it's only about policymaking, was, was serving as a, a counterbalance to the executive, right? Uh, of course, they, uh, the, the president, the Speaker of the House did not initiate procedures for impeachment as a lot of people wanted to. But in, in other ways, it has been serving as a counterbalance to the executive, uh, and so has civil society. So I think it is problematic to, to talk about uh, whether just in terms of institutions working or not working. I think the, the, the question we should be asking is, what is, which institutions are working and why are they working and which are not and why they are not, um, so that we can better understand what the state of democracy in the country is. So let me ask you that question you propose. Which institutions are working and which are not? Institutions that are not working, well, one of them for sure right now is the Federal Prosecution Office. Uh, we've seen time and again that there have been instances of uh, uh, Bolsonaro really uh, going uh, passing the line uh, in terms of uh, threatening democratic institutions and there has been no action or the actions that has been taken is... Uh, not going anywhere. Uh, we also have a problem in some parts of Bolsonaro's cabinets, and we're seeing this with the, the Minister of Health, uh, who is facing a, a Congress right now and is having to explain himself to Congress for his conduct in the uh, related to the pandemic. So I think uh, th those are examples, right? But again, there are examples of institutions working. Uh, and up to this point, I would say that Congress was doing a decent job. We don't know what's going to happen right now with the two new uh, speakers in the, in the House and in the Senate. It's interesting that you mentioned Congress as a well-functioning institution because I guess if you ask Brazilians, probably 10 out of 10 would disagree with you. And it reminds me of an op-ed you wrote for us about the sheer disconnection between the perception and the reality when it comes to actual workings of Congress. I think there are a number of reasons for that. Um, the, the, so let me, uh, I'll, I'll separate them in, into 
too. There are the, the things that in two groups, there are the things that are uh, actual problems and there are the perceptions that we have about Congress that do not have a uh, basis in reality, right? Um, so the, the things that are actually true, a lot of the congressmen uh, are really bad at their jobs, right? A lot of them are. And, and I think in this op-ed that, that you're mentioning, I, I mentioned my own research and looking at only the, the House of Representatives, only a third of the, the deputies there are actually trying to do some decent work um, in terms of uh, pushing their, <clears throat> their agenda items into the legislative process and trying to enact them into law, right, um, as both bill sponsors or, or bill rapporteurs. So that is not uh, not a lot of people, a third, right? You think about uh, 513. We're really not talking about a lot of a lot of effective congressmen. Um, so that's part of it. And the other part that really has uh, it's actually true is the 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 fact that these congressmen are all most of them are involved in corruption. Um, accusations, right? They are accused, uh, they're facing several accusations and corruption are the types of crimes. So that, that especially in a country uh, in Brazil and actually in, in any Latin American country, that is something that is very powerful for the electorate. Um, at the same time, I think that the media does a very poor job of, co of covering uh, congressional politics. Uh, we don't have a lot of news articles for example, about what Congress is achieving, what is passing, and why it is what it's why it's important for Brazilian society. And I try to like to, to come back to this all the time, right? So if you think about the pandemic, for instance, um, the 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 relief package that we got, it was Congress who that pushed for it and that increased the amount that every uh, that was sent to Brazilians. So th there was a role there uh, that was being fulfilled by the institution of Congress that I don't think people understand. Uh, so I think part of the problem there is the media. The other part uh, is also that the political system is complex, right? And, and I don't know how fair it is for us to ask of uh, citizens to fully understand what's going on. Um, maybe we need also we, and now I'm talking as a researcher, maybe we need to do a better job in trying to explain that to them. Um, I think those are the, the things that come to mind now in terms of why the, the perception is, is just so bad. One of the main criticisms of Congress is, like you said, the fact that it has not initiated an impeachment process against President Bolsonaro. And God knows, he has committed dozens of impeachable offenses since taking office in 2019. That being said, what would the impact of yet another impeachment be on Brazilian democracy, considering that it would be the third in just over 30 years since the return of civilian rule in 1985? Well, so I, I'm going to just answer that with another question to you. Um, when we had uh, Dilma Rousseff's impeachment, we had a civilian who took office, uh, Michel Temer. If Bolsonaro is impeached right now, we have a military officer taking his place. How would that damage our democracy? Is a question that I've been asking myself. Um, yes, Bolsonaro has made numerous impeachable offenses. I don't think there is any, you're, you're not going to find any political scientist who will say otherwise. It's th that is the case. What I wonder is, 
what will happen if we remove him and we have a military officer as a president in a country like Brazil that hasn't um, solved any of the issues we had with the transition from a military regime to a democracy and in which the military still plays a big role, as you, you said in the beginning of our conversation. After the break, we expand our discussion to Latin America. We'll be right back. Hi, my name's Ewan Marshall. I'm an editor at The Brazilian Report. Now, we receive a ton of mail from people who like this show and want to support it. And if that's your case, then you can subscribe to The Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We have articles about Brazil, Latin America, and daily newsletters with everything you need to know before starting your day. Now, you can get a taste of what we do for seven days without putting in any credit card information whatsoever before you commit to a subscription. And go to brazilian.report slash subscribe. We're back with Beatriz Hay, a research fellow at the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at the American University in Washington, D.C. She's also a columnist for the Brazilian Report. Beatriz, I'd like to expand our conversation now to Latin America, not only Brazil. The region has just three full democracies, according to the Economist's uh, Democracy Index, which is as many as those countries considered to be under an authoritarian regime. And as we know, Latin America is the most unequal region in the world. How can democracy flourish with such obscene levels of inequality? Yeah, I think it's very hard to, to conceive of a full democracy with the levels of inequality that we have. Um, I think it is a chicken and an egg problem, right? Because in order to address it, we, we need some level of stability in, within our democratic systems right now, uh, which we don't have. And then inequality keeps being postponed uh, in the agendas of many of these countries. Um, so it, it is hard. And, and that makes me, so especially thinking about the countries that have a history of democratic stability. And here we're talking about Chile, Uruguay, and Costa Rica, right? Um, I think, and in, in particular, uh, Chile and in, in, in Uruguay that I know uh, better than, than Costa Rica, we're talking about countries that have a history with democratic politics, right? We're talking about countries, and I think, Gustavo, for me, the more I study political science, the more I, I, I think that democracy can only work in uh, a part, in a multi-party system that is not fragmented as the one that we have in Brazil and with parties that have some level of uh, programmatic commitments. And we find both of these things in Chile and Uruguay. The parties are not, uh, so we, we have this, uh, we, we talk a lot in Brazil about the parties of the, we, we know as Centrão, right? The big center. Uh, those are parties that, that that have no particular ideological or programmatic commitment. In Chile and Uruguay, we have parties that have historically um, been programmatic, that have roots in society, right? We, we have a, a party system that has been uh, institutionalized for many years, even with the interruption of the, 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 the dictatorship periods that we had. 
Um, so I, I think to me, yes, you have the, the structural conditions. We have the, 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 the inequality that you talked about. You have the size of the country. But um, we talk a lot about in, in political science about what explains economic development, right? Um, and a lot of the literature talks about how you have these culture explanations or these historical explanations. But I would like to think that uh, political actors have some, some room, some freedom to change institutions, right? Um, I think that the way to, to, to start building a better democracy, a democracy that is not flawed, like this 13 countries that we have in the latest Economist report, would be to, first, in the case of Brazil, that is an extreme case, reduce the, the, the size of the party. So we can't have a party system with 30-something parties, right? Uh, and to, to start building more uh, programmatic parties, parties that are concerned with pushing for a policy agenda and not merely concerned with uh, cabinet positions and budget amendments. And, and don't get me wrong, I think that cabinet positions and budget amendments are part of what every party should do. That's part of it, but it cannot be all of it. Beatriz, Latin America's score in the Democracy Index has gone down for the past five years. What has pushed that? Is it the end of the commodities boom, which worsened economic conditions and fostered social resentment? And how much the pandemic has made things worse for democracies in Latin America? I think you're right. The part of the answer is economics um, with the end of the commodity boom. And part of the answer is um, it's contextual, right? The pandemic was something that nobody planned for but I also, I would like to think that part of the answer is political, right? It relates to politics. And I think this is something that we've been observing in, in all over the world. We're, we're in the middle of a crisis about democracy. I think we've, uh, it's still the best form of government we have, but it is we still don't understand how to make it work better in terms of delivering what people want, right? Um, people vote uh, every four years in some countries differently, uh, different time frame, but uh, expecting that that candidate, that that president or that that legislator is going to deliver uh, policies that will uh, improve their life conditions. And I think in a lot of these Latin American countries, we, we, we talk about, like, for instance, uh, what was part of the protest in Brazil, uh, urban politics, right? We have uh, health issues, um, we have education, uh, people want a return for, they want, the, they're part of the bargain, right? They pay the taxes, they go and vote, they want the political system to give something back to them. And and I think that these democracies are struggling to do that, more so in, in a region like, like Latin America, for the reasons you mentioned, uh, with the inequality and, and so on and so forth. So I think this is a conversation that we're having everywhere in the world, in this country here in the U.S. in particular. Uh, how do we make democracy work better? I think that's the question that, 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 that has been on the mind of a, a lot of people. And um, there is a political scientist that I really, really, really like, um, Adam, Adam Chaworski. Um, and he has a piece about what he call he calls the authoritarian challenge, right? And his his argument is the following: If we think about countries like China, that are able to deliver uh, economic development, that are able to deliver, um, or a country like Singapore, that are able to deliver some level of social security, 
what is the benefit really of democracy if these authoritarian countries are able to deliver some tangible goods to to the population so his point is just obviously not to defend authoritarian regimes but to say we need to think about what democracy brings to the table we need to think about how to improve democracy and and we're not we're starting to do that right now so i think we're going to start like we're going to keep having these conversations right and in the case of, of latin american i i really think that the answer is to to improve the conditions that, that the for party systems to develop better. Um, I think to me that's that's it's having spent uh, uh, the time I did in Brasilia and having um, followed politicians as closely as I have. I, I think the more I think about it, I think that we need a strong party system. Um, otherwise, we're we're going to continue to 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 see this pattern. Uh, but now that said, I just want to uh, point that. Uh, Yes, we have been dropping our democracy index for five years, but the region, the Latin Americans' average uh, score is still higher than the rest of the world. So th that is somewhat surprising to me. Uh, and I wonder, uh, I, I'm doing some work to, to check what the other measurements of democracy say, uh, but that would signal that we have some reason to be optimistic. I don't know. One thing that is interesting about the Economist's uh, Democracy Index is that the countries which fare better are not only less unequal, but also smaller countries with fewer people and a less diverse population. It happens in Europe, Latin America, North America. How difficult it is to spur democratic values in countries that are vast and that have a very heterogeneous population with multiple conflicting interests playing out. Well, I think... Uh Part of the answer is definitely to think about our our federal system, right? Uh, and that's something that since we and here I'm sorry I'm I'm talking about Brazil specifically, but in the case of Brazil specifically, we democratized and and in, in '85 we draft a new constitution in '88 that establishes uh, a three levels of of government: the national, the state, and the municipal. And so far, for instance, for the implementation of education policies, we have not regulate, we, we have no guidance in, in terms of how these three levels of government should interact um, to provide education politics, right? Policies. Uh, we, we're doing it kind of haphazard, right? Uh, I think for, for, for countries that are uh, larger in terms of size and population, like Brazil, um, like Argentina, uh, we, we also have to, to think about the federalist system and how to, to improve that. So maybe, uh, along with my suggestion about the party system, we have to also, um, better understand the challenges that we have in this, uh, this, this countries that have federal systems, right? Um, I would like to think, again, I would like to think that the size of a country cannot determine its political development. Uh, and we have outliers, right? There are outliers for every single um, generalization that we try to, to make in politics. Um, so I think I would, I would think that that would be one, one way to think about how to strengthen democracy would be to think about um, 
federal system, especially because uh, so you see variation in terms of how democracy deepens in in some states in, in relation to others, right? Um, just look at what's happening in the North region right now in Brazil with the, the pandemic and compare that to the Southeast, right? Um, so there, there is definitely some variation in terms of how democratic states are in Brazil. So what, what do we do to make sure that this democratization process is more even in, across states? Beatriz Hey, thank you very much. Thank you. If you like Explaining Brazil, please rate us with five stars. That will help more people find out about this show. Or you can sign up to The Brazilian Report, the journalistic engine behind this podcast. We offer a seven-day free trial, no strings attached, which gives you access to the site for a week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. I'm Gustavo Ribeiro. Thanks for listening. See you next week.